Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Galaxy Kingdom podcast. I am one of your lovely hosts, Crystal Williams. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm here with my equally amazing, talented, funny, smart co-host, Lizzie. Hi. I'm here. You You is here. I am here. My pronouns are she and her, so, and he. <laughs> They don't say it wrong. Why not? I pronouns are she and he. So you're her, she. Got it. <laughs> he. It's all mixed always, together. Always, I always put, always put she first so that I don't accidentally say a slur when I'm giving my pronouns. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's not good. It's not. It's very, it's very annoying. <laughs> because a lot of people take the order that you put your pronouns in as, like, kind of a preference order. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I think some people do. I think, like, subconsciously. I, I don't think that it's, 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 a, it's, like, an intentional thing. I think, like, when you have more than one set of pronouns, you, like, uh, I think people tend to lean to, towards doing that. I think it's a subconscious thing. Sometimes it's intentional. It certainly tends to be, like, a point. I always try to take it as a point being made to me when someone says, like, they, she first. So, mm. like, okay, you want me to prioritize. I, at least I tend to. And I find that people people tend to take, like, the pronouns you put first as the main ones they use for you. Right. I'm not necessarily saying that I want people to use he mainly. Uh, I like it when people switch between them. But... <laughs> I kind of, I'm kind of stuck there. I'm kind of like, oh. I get it. It's just, it's just how I have to write it. I can't. <laughs> I get it. I I kind of like that you have multiple choice pronouns. <laughs> Fun. Or in my example of testing, it was multiple guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't fucking know. See? <laughs> Well, it's been it's been a little bit since the two of us did one, I believe, a few weeks. Like just us. So sorry, uh, Jazzy couldn't make it. Just uh, uh, she got hooked into a wormhole and disappeared for a little bit, but she'll be back. She'll return gloriously. Probably with new superpowers. Maybe on fire or something like that. Oh, that would be cool. Like a Johnny Storm sort of thing? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> My mind went to Chris Chris uh Chris Evans. <laughs> but I'm older, so I remember the fantastic, seeing the Fantastic Four movies in theaters. <laughs> I remember the posters. I remember the posters for the Fantastic Fantastic Four movies. I don't think anybody took me to see them. So. Do you feel like you lost out? Not really. Okay, yeah. <laughs> good. I was having, I had a thought because <laughs> there was I, there was a tweet going around that was like, "What are your honest opinions on uh, Nick Cage's Blade Runner or Blade Runner?" <laughs> Nick Cage was in Blade Runner. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nick Cage is so 
Ghost Rider. I don't know why the fuck I... <laughs> Imagine if it was Harrison Ford swapped in every role that Nick Cage had, and Nick Cage had every Harrison Ford role. Out <laughs> there, multiverse is there. Well, so that's Nick true. Ghost, Nick Cage's Ghost Rider. Okay, yeah. Uh, and I was like, you know what I should do? I should. Uh-huh. My, like, my my friend Josh quote tweeted, and he was like, this movie was bad, and I'm happy that we're not in this this awkward era of superhero movies anymore. And I was like, you know what I should do is I should have a a, a movie like a watch party, um, where we watch go the Ghost Nick Cage Ghost Rider movie and Catwoman. Ooh, that's fun. Spawn. You, you mean the 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 awkward early two thousands superhero movies like Fantastic Four and Catwoman and Ghost Rider and and maybe Daredevil and Spawn. yeah I put I put that one on there too I said the the, the Ben Affleck Daredevil and we was a little bit of a still still in the right period but kind of a palate cleanser with the Constantine. Yeah, Constantine fits in that era yeah, a little bit too. Yeah. Keanu Reeves Constantine, which is a good movie, but a terrible adaptation of Constantine. <laughs> yeah, as someone who likes Constantine, I um, that's not my preferred choice for uh for film, but I I do. I I did kind of enjoy it when I saw it years ago. I just don't remember a whole lot. Oh, I like I Keanu. We we watched it recently when I was doing my little um, Keanu Reeves. Kick. Yeah. Um, and like, like I said, the, the, that is it's actually a very, it's a good movie. He has really great chemistry with uh, Rachel Weisz. Um, Tilda Swinton plays Gabriel, which is the perfect fucking casting. Like, there's a lot of like, and like it's it's a it's actually a very good movie. I really like it. I think it's a good time, and I don't even think I don't think that uh, the like that. Keanu is hitting any wrong notes with Constantine as much as it's just that he, first of all, the fact that he's American is a huge issue. Obviously, like, it's just... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's something with with Keanu. I like Keanu a lot, and, and I think from what I remember, he gave a good performance, but I just don't get the, um, the I don't, I just, he doesn't exude John Constantine to me. You know, like... No. Well, and the thing is that because Constantine is a little bit more of a nihilist in the um, thumbs up way, and Keanu playing him as a nihilist in the thumbs down way. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. um, See, that's why I still think the most accurate. Constantine we've gotten like whether or not it be in voice acting because he's done voice acting as well uh, I still think Matt Ryan's the, the most accurate version of that character we've seen of John Constantine as he appears in said comics and stuff um I'm a fan of his performances in that role to be honest um but I do like Keanu how do you feel about um Jenna Coleman in Sandman isn't she like, like, kind of also not John Constantine though? Okay. Like, well, like she, she she's playing both. She's so she is she's playing both characters is the thing. Yeah. So in in the comics, Joanna Constantine is a separate character from John Constantine. She's his like great 
great, like, I don't remember how many, whatever number of great's grandmother. Yeah. Um, and she's similar to John, but she is a distinct character unto her own. Um, and in, but in the Sandman show, and I think they chose to do this for a variety of reasons that mostly boil down to uh, slight rights complications with Warner Brothers. Um, That's right, because it's not in, like, the, it's not, the show's not set in the DC universe. Yeah. Like, not Um, exactly. I think it's a, yeah, I, so I think, I think it really just boils down to, like, a a, a rights, a complicated rights situation, um, and that DC didn't, like, didn't want to let them, I think partly because they're producing their own Constantine show and stuff, but, um, so Jenna Coleman play, is playing both Joanna Constantine, John Constantine's great great grandmother, but she also was just is just playing John Constantine. Yeah, I can. I yeah, it, that's pretty much what it was. Yeah, no, I yeah, thought she was good. Coleman. <laughs> I thought she was good. I I I still think of those three, Matt Ryan would be my choice, just because I feel like he fits nicely into the character that I I feel closest. But nothing to nothing to like detract from either performer in their own versions. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I just like that character, and I like seeing his adaptation done fairly well. And I still, I think, I think Matt Ryan nailed it. Like from like just screen presence and and voice presence, because in the animated films he's great too, like they did with him. So. But it's all it's all up to personal um, preferences on that point, and I don't think either of them is bad. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. No, I was just I was just curious because we also don't like we don't get a like she's really only in as as the as the John as John Constantine she's really only uh, in the one episode. Yeah. I liked her outfit. Like I, I got the vibe of. From her and her presence. I agree. I agree. I liked that they feminized it without making it like. Like it still like gives off that John Constantine vibe, but it's just a more feminine presentation version of that. Mm Hmm. Um. They didn't. They didn't make it sexy. (laughs) No, it wasn't a. It wasn't a sexy vibe. Costume designers frequently really like to do. They, I was looking at a picture of her, and yeah, they 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 got it, you know. Mm-hmm. She she was good in the the limited time we saw her. <laughs> but like thought, everyone in the Netflix Sandman was great, to be honest. Yeah, I was gonna say I finally got my girlfriend to start watching it. Um, she's only seen the first two episodes, um, and she's already cried because of the baby gargoyle. But <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. No, I get that. No, that was, show was bad. I, sorry. Oh, I was just saying that was that show was really good. It was. It was great. It makes me. I. The thing about it is that for me, the idea of a live action Sandman stressed me out in a, to a certain degree because I was so worried that they were gonna make dream like they weren't gonna be able to make Dream look right. Mm-hmm. I was so worried that they were going to try and make him like a CGI monstrosity in some capacity because you can't really, you're not, I didn't think you were going to find an actor who had like the right face. 
They did. <laughs> and they did. I don't know where, I don't know what lab they grew that man in. Because <laughs> 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 he has that facial structure. Uh, he's a robot, actually. Clearly, because I, I, like, see, I just don't, I don't know how. I don't. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying, yeah. Um, the casting for Death is, is spectacular, it's perfect. I think that was my favorite episode so far. I really like that episode a lot. My two fa- those my my two favorite episodes is episode six, which is Death's episode, and mm-hmm. the and episode eleven, uh, with Calliope. Oh yeah, that was good. Well, I, I, that those were my two favorites, very very easily. Well, um, we're getting I, so, more. So. I'm also a big fan because I can't like watching some of the episodes back again. Like I said recently, what I. I a thing I really like is that fun, all, basically all of the care, almost all of the characters are like some flavor of gender queer or non-binary, especially particularly the not human characters. Oh, there's a lot of gen, gen, gender fuckery going on. Yeah, and there's a lot of and not everyone's like gay or pansexual to some degree, and it's very it's just so much more interesting to watch, and it fits really well into these like. I like that when you're working with these abs- these characters who are super abstract concepts, like an angel or a demon or a dream or a nightmare, mm-hmm. or, you know, the personification of desire and despair. <laughs> I, I think it's way more interesting when you conceptualize these things as not being constrained by the same, like, bounds of, of gender that's far yeah, more interesting. Yeah, it's like way it's way more interesting. And it's one of the things the things I like about the endless as a concept also has always been that that they they are not gods, but that they also are not human. Mm-hmm. And so it allows you to create this very different um sense of right and wrong and morality and gender and identity and propriety among them as entities. And it's the kind of thing that I think a lot of writers don't do enough of when you have, when you're given the opportunity to make like an alien society or this sort of otherworldly ethereal species and you just copy and paste human dynamics. Hmm. And rules in a way that's so boring. <laughs> well, that's why queer people need to tackle that even more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just being honest, you get a lot more interesting combinations. So, I, I'm right? excited for more of that. You run into this problem too sometimes. I notice in like adaptate, like more modern depictions of like the greek or roman pantheons mm-hmm. is you get people who have this instinct to like soften 
the the characters in quotes, I guess, not to be like disrespectful to anybody about it, but like to to sort of soften the actions and the personalities of these uh, of these characters in a way to like make them palatable to a 21st century um, perception of right and wrong and interaction and what is noble versus what is um, immoral in a way that like like makes the make makes these things fundamentally less interesting. One of the things I saw a tweet sorry, sorry, I'm going off on such a, a tangent. No, it's fine. I, this is what the podcast is for, by the way. <laughs> I saw a tweet just the other day and I really, really liked it about um uh brain. About Robert, Robert Eggers? Yeah. Lost, lost his name for a second. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Anyway, um, about Robert Eggers, Robert Eggers movies, uh, like stuff like The Northman and- I still need to see Witch. And The Witch. I love love Lighthouse. I love The Lighthouse. Oh my fucking god. Yeah. (laughs) I think that one's my favorite, but- Uh, I wasn't that really that as impressed with Northman. I thought it was- well made, but I just it didn't click. Uh, Lighthouse mm-hmm. clicked with me. That's valid. Yeah. Um, but that he does like, and I, this was a thing that I had observed too, especially coming out of the Northman, is where I where I I found it the most interesting. But that Robert Eggers is very good at telling stories through the lens of a relative morality. Yes. Uh, that doesn't seek to like, and it's like with the North, like I found this, so it was, one the, it was a thing with the North and specifically that I found like the most compelling about the movie is what is, what is right, quote unquote, and what is wrong and what is, what's morally reprehensible. And it's just so, is so, 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 so relative to the time and the place and the culture. And it's almost alien, it's like alien to our like modern understandings of 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 these things, right? So like it's not it's not immoral that you're burning children in a building or taking taking and selling slaves, but it is deeply immoral that this man murdered and usurped his brother so much so that the gods are cosmically punishing him for it. And that's so and, and Robert Eggers takes that more out like that extremely different and foreign and alien code of morality and engages with it completely sincerely Mm -hmm. through the perspective of the characters and the story he was telling. And it's so, it makes for such an interesting movie. And again, if you don't drive with that, I totally, I I, I totally get it. I, I would agree that I think the Northman is probably his weakest movie. Yeah. I uh, I don't think it was bad. I just it's just not one that didn't you know, like you know it just didn't vibe. I didn't vibe with it. But it's but it is it is a well made film, and I and I respected everyone who put their heart into it. You know. Mm-hmm. So. I just find I found that I found that really interesting. I found I find I find I find that to be, and I'm happy to see that other people were observing that as well. Is that he he really leans into wholeheartedly like not judging. 
the people by like a contemporary standard, but like really engaging with like how what were the and getting really into the state of mind and emotion and perspective on things that the characters in the story he's telling should and do and would have. Right. It very much was a was an analysis of the people of the, uh, roughly the time and about like how what they valued and and the and the the morality doesn't really come into play with that story. It's kind of like just people. I mean, it does in a sense of like non judge of of evaluating their levels of morality and what they value most. Um, but I don't think a modern conception of that really um would do that story justice, I suppose. So it would be a deeply difficult story to tell and in an attempt well like while trying to apply a modern moral code to it. Yeah. I mean you could, but I think it would probably it would probably make the film less interesting. Exactly. You'd have a you'd have a much less interesting movie. Um You'd probably have like good guy versus bad guy revenge sort of angle, you know. Yeah. Cuz I've seen that done a lot. So I can respect that. Would would like drastically change the stakes of everything that's happening, right? Because the ease with which these people murder each other makes everything so much more anxiety-inducing the entire time you're watching it. Yeah. Um, I also... Uh, brain. Brain. Oh, my God. Specific thing I was going to say about it. Oh, yeah. Um, it's also, like, the the story in that movie, like, wasn't a, it's not an original story for the movie. It's act, it's very, it's loosely based on an old um, Nordic tale. It's got a very tale, like, old tale vibe to it. Yeah. yeah. That was an early inspiration for Hamlet. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I've seen people wrongly say that the movie is based on Hamlet, and it's not. It's based on the thing Hamlet was based on. <laughs> right. Uh, but, like, yeah, you can see it, right? It's just the, the narrative about, like, the exiled son uh, seeking vengeance on his uncle, who is uh, taken up, like, a an affair with his mother, and, like... Yeah. No, I see that. The fracture side and whatnot, yeah. <laughs> and I also, think that's, I also just think that's super cool. It's mm-hmm. one of the things that's actually fun about Shakespeare. Because people, sometimes people like to point out, and they think that they're making some kind of hot take, that a lot of Shakespeare's, uh, the plots to Shakespeare's plays were not original. In a lot of Shakespeare's plays, like in the most famous, like Romeo and Juliet, like Hamlet, like... A lot of them were uh, based on pre-existing stories that he learned elsewhere or that existed in other cultures and that he adapted and mm-hmm. retold in his plays. I actually, I, that's one of the things I find to be the coolest thing about learning Shakespeare. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think it's really neat and cool and amazing that we can have that, that a story that old, as, like, as, as that old has been told and retold so many times throughout human history across 
the entire world. I think that that's so much more interesting. <laughs> I mean, it is interesting that we're all a lot more similar than we like to admit. I th- I, I, I'm all just so fat. Like it's, it's it's fun and fascinating that stories that old persist. You know. Yeah. I think there's a there's a there's an essence in humanity that is carried like with all of us. You know, we all experience love and death, and we're all grappling with that. And I think it's really interesting that those themes can carry between cultures, between time, and for years. So we're getting very. Uh, very deep here on the Galza Keaton podcast. Unnecessarily uh, esoteric about things. No, I just think it's cool. I think it's cool. I think it's very interesting. Um, and it's also part of why sometimes I get sad. I get sad when I see young people who are so invested in their own new things um, in such a way that they want to dismiss um, old, older things. Yeah. Because I find that, like, when you, once you, like, realize this about human storytelling, some people, like, people will be like, well, nothing's original, so why does it matter? And I'm like, no, the fact that nothing is truly original is, like, so much, like, is that, that's what, it's so interesting. And it is so fun and amazing to track the history of stories and character archetypes and naming conventions and how you call back to things. Like, you can, and through that sort of, interconnected tube of movies and film and books and legend and storytelling, you can introduce themes and communicate things about characters and people through names and costumes and colors. And that's what makes like the story storytelling interesting and narrative theory interesting and examining and understanding stories fun and interesting. Yeah, exactly. Once you know all those connections, you can piece together almost any story. Like, the fundamentals of uh, media analysis, for sure. <laughs> hey, Crystal, I have a question for you. Oh, uh, sure. Ants, ask me away. Ask away. Sorry, my brain's going like, ask away. That's fine. It's just, I'm, I'm, I'm curious... Because uh, I don't know, I don't know if my my fan, my, maybe I'm just uh, up here in my ivory tower of fancy formal education, mm-hmm. and so I've lost. I personally have just lost sight about what is um, a, a commonly understood concept and and what is a dense, difficult academic language for people to to penetrate. Um, so I need you to tell me, I'm going to give you a word, and I'm sorry if this is a really hard one. I need you to tell me if you know what it means so that I can have a reference point here. Ooh. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> are you, oh, are just, you, just take it slow. I'm kidding. Yeah, uh, are you, are you familiar with the, the concepts in a story? I know it's, it's really hard. It's kind of hard to understand. The concept of a story called subtext. Hmm. You know, this is really difficult. Ah. 
Is subtext meaning subtraction, like you're subtracting the text? Is that when you throw away your book? Um, no, no, but I see, I understand you're breaking down the, you're breaking, you're breaking down the words and that's a good instinct. I understand. Um, but, but no, it's sub more like submarine, like under. Oh, sub. So the, so the text is underground. That's when you put, you bury your book, right? Uh, so think a little (laughs) less literally. Let's, let's try (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> um, yes, I understand. The, I, I understand the, the the um transition, the segue you were going with that. With yes, I understand what the the what subtext means. It means it's not text. I mean, it's in. It's not clearly stated within the text of the work, but it's there. But it is it's the subtext. Yes. I just needed to make sure because I was told I was told this week on Twitter by another by another film scholar, a, a film self-identified scholar. narrative theorist mm-hmm. that just that that the word subtext was um, some impenetrable pseudo academic speak. Well, we all know that you just sit up in your ivory tower and judge people as the de facto person for all things film knowledge. Yeah. <sighs> that person was a was a was a was a work. Was an interesting time. So for yeah. people who are sitting there going, what the fuck are they talking about? Um <laughs> the beginning the beginning of the story is that there was a really bad Twitter take. It was just this guy who was like complete like like <laughs> Hang on, I can pull it up. I have a screenshot. (laughs) I was texting my girlfriend. I was so annoyed about it. (laughs) It's valid to be annoyed of it. We were texting back and forth about that. Yes, let's see. Let's let let me let me read it from this uh, from this heterosexual white man. Uh, well, um, according in in a slightly adjacent topic to that, um, someone quote tweeted me when I said that um, in the recent DLC for um, Horizon, I forget what the newer Horizon game is called, but I don't know. Lizzie, have you heard of those games, the Horizon Zero Dawn or series? Yeah, yeah. Okay, like, did you hear that the um, that the new game released the DLC where one of the a- options toward the end of it is to have your main female protagonist have a relationship with another female character. Um, and, um, it, by the way, this is completely optional. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it, the, the Chuds re- reviewed bombed it and gave it, gave it like the negative sc- scores on Metacritic and all that. So much so that Metacritic has to now retool their entire system because of how fraudulent the reviews were, you know, the the review bombing was. Um, mm-hmm. But I tweeted about this, and then some idiot <laughs> co-tweeted and was like, uh, um, 
Horizon took the cowardly way. Uh, it's so bold of people to have straight white men in games now. Not joking. And they weren't joking. This is a different person, right? This is a different person, but your your comment about heterosexual white men uh, yeah. led me to this other rabbit hole of another heterosexual white man complaining that there's um, that there's no straight white men in video ga- games. Oh, wait. What is that? One of the top selling games of this year is Dead Space, Dead Space Remake, a remake where it stars a straight white guy. Okay. Um, another top selling game this year is Resident Evil 4. What is that? A straight white American guy is the lead? Oh, wait. The day that post happened, you know what came out? The new Star Wars Jedi game, Jedi Fallen Order sequel. Um, I think it's called Jedi Survivor. Um, starring, you're gonna, you're gonna have a hard time figuring this one out. Straight white guy from the show Saint Shameless. Huh. Impossible, Crystal. Impossible. I, sorry, you're, you're I, I guess the one, the one queer lady just demolishes all those other straight white guys, right? Is that how it works? Right, that's exactly, that, that we have, we, um, have a magic force that, like, erases them out of existence. Right. That's that silly me, of course. Sorry, we, we really need a diversity and as in diversity we need more straight white guys. They never get their fair shake. They've had it um too hard for too long. Way too hard for too long. They need some help. Um and moving back into our original topic of straight white guys being um misogynistic. Continue if you're <laughs> Yes, okay. Sorry, I didn't mean the tangent. I'm sorry. I just, no, you reminded okay. me and I'm like, I needed to mock this person. Modern slasher movies get so overinvested in sentimental B stories about sisters, mother daughter relationships, friendships, or whatever. Cannot stress enough how much you do not need these. It's really fine to just hack through a bunch of teens. Now, I'm sure you, intelligent listener, already understand why that, all of the many reasons, in an instantly, that that is a stupid fucking thing to say, right? That's dumb. And there are a multitude of angles why that is dumb. And so I quote tweeted him to explain all of the many, many ways and angles and reasons that that is very dumb. Because from the starting, and to be clear, from the starting point, the thing that bothers me about it quite a lot is that it seems to be under the impression that slasher movies, the the good ones that people remember and care about, and that like influenced the culture and spawned a ton of sequels, didn't have these sentimental character-driven B plots. Uh, they have, yes, they did. Even the central characters, I'm going to add, had stories about familial relationships. Black Christmas. Black, Black Christmas. Christmas. There's that whole scene we're talking about having an abortion. It literally has an entire subplot about the main character wanting an abortion. And specifically, it's not just that like she quietly wants an abortion. She wants an abortion, and her boyfriend is trying to stop her. Well, that's one example. I'm, I'm, yeah, exactly. And Even uh, like the original Friday the 13th. Halloween. 
The original Halloween spends its a third of its runtime letting us just like get to know Laurie Strode. And the other teens. And the other teens. We're just hanging out with her. We're getting to, we get to know her personality. We learn about what her relationship is like with her friends and with the adults in the neighborhood. We get a very, very good sense of the fact that Laurie Strode is, she's sweet, she's nice, she's responsible. She and her friends seem to genuinely care about each other, but she's still kind of, just kind of a doormat. She kind of lets her friends walk over her. She's a bit of a pushover in that way. They she's care a about good, her. Good girl like, of her friend group. Yeah, yeah but they, their friends like, clearly care about her, but they also know that, like, if they ask her to do something, she'll do it and they can get away with what they want. And so, like, she's kind of passive and she's shy. And that makes it much more interesting and investing and exciting when she's getting chased around by Michael. Because right, because you, you care about them. Because, like, you give a shit. A Nightmare on Elm Street, don't even fucking get me started. Literally the entire fucking point of A Nightmare on Elm Street is that the reason all of this is happening is because of the parents' failures to uh, properly prepare their children for life. A Nightmare and on Elm Street is, into their own hands. Yeah, it is fundamentally about why you should not lie to your children. And how you should, um, you need to be honest with them. And how lying to them puts them in more danger than whatever, in whatever capacity it is you think you're protecting them. Right? Like that, like that is so, like, <laughs> these are <laughs> fundamental things about this genre. And especially the, like, the, the sisters dig in that tweet had me really fucking annoyed because it was clearly a subtweet about Scream 5 and 6. And I need you to, motherfucker, what the fuck do you think the first four movies in this franchise were about? Because I've got news for you. It's literally, the first four Scream movies are a fucking soap opera about Sydney's relationship to her dead mother. Yes. That's what these fucking movies have always, so it's like, it's a stupid fucking, on the face of it, the idea that any of the slasher movies that were ever good and memorable and that we collectively care about, I could keep going, right? But like, that you that were good and, and that we cared about didn't have these things to begin with is already stupid. But I would capitulate to the fact that they tended to be like more background elements they tended to be, like, these themes tended to present themselves a lot more in the subtext than the actual text of the film, right? So mm-hmm. the, other, the other thing that's annoying <laughs> is that, like, to be irritated by this is, is to come from a place of ignorance. Because the way that genres grow and that genres evolve um, is by looking inward at the subtext of, your, of the films that you've been making, uh, and to think, like, what is actually, like, what's resonant about this? What makes the, the, the movies in this genre that people remember and care about, what made people remember and care about them? What is interesting? What makes them unique? What makes it valuable? And you find, and if you can pinpoint that correctly and lean into those elements as the genre goes forward that's how the genre grows because if you just keep making the same movie for 40 years people stop wanting to fucking watch it no 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 we have to keep it in the past we have to always make it about dumb dumb teens being murdered by um by by slashers you know by killers that's all it needs yeah 
You don't need anything else. You don't need anything else. It's funny, though. Even the films that they all praise as being, like, just slashing through teens have those moments and elements. Well, like, even, and I said in my, I used the uh, first two Friday the 13th movies um, as an example of, like, the kind of thing he's talking about uh, that actually does have, like, obviously a cultural presence and staying power um, of, like, because I, I, like, I could give, like, I'm not here to pretend that, like, all of these movies were super deep. (laughs) Or anything. So, like, yeah, sure, the Friday, like, and, but even the Friday the 13th movies, like, even in the weaker movies that fit into that, de- that, that, that description of just, like, annoying teenagers getting hacked down by a, by a man in a, in a brisk 80 to 90 minutes, even those still would have, like, internal character conflict. Right. I mean, that's just making a movie, right? Like, I meant to say, I'm sorry. I, I mean, that's just ma- making a mo- movie and a story, right? Like, it's a like very reason, common thing. The 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 reason people remember um, Corey Feldman, <laughs> like, the reason people remember um, that whole story, character's story arc in the Friday movies is because, like, it was interesting. Yeah, it was good. When we, when we first meet... Um, oh, my God, I'm so bad with names. Tommy Jarvis? Tommy Jarvis, thank you. Oh my god. When we first meet Tommy Jarvis in Friday the thirteenth part four, mm-hmm. like the whole thing that's going on, there's all of this background shit happening. Him and his sister and his mom are like his like are they, like they're go they're, their family's going through a divorce. Mm-hmm. Like there's a whole bunch there's like and like him and his sister's kind of like like sibling relationship is the emotion is like the interesting emotional crux of that movie and that's why people like Friday part 4 so much. That's why it's my favorite. That's yeah, like it's got it's got memorable characters who are like dealing with things in their life that makes you already invested in what's going on with them before someone tries to kill them. Exactly. You care about them. You care about them. So, like, even even the, the, the franchises and the entries that I would, like, you could argue fit into that definition, they still have, like, other shit. Like, uh, they still have B-plots. They might have been way more minimal, but they were always, like, they, they're there. <laughs> I mean, even the A-plots are really about the familial connections, right? Like, the first Friday the 13th is, is Jason's mom. That's super, that's not, like, even the first Friday, like, again, and I think the first, like, the early Friday movies are, are pretty bare, like, the Friday movies in general, but especially the early ones are kind of, like, they tend to be pretty bare bones in their uh, conception. But, like, even that unto itself, the existence of uh, Pamela Voorhees being the killer in that movie is, at the time, was a huge twist. Mm-hmm. Like, it was supposed to be, it was very, like, it's, and, and it, like, the idea that this small... I don't want to say old because she's not really old, but like older, older mother, yeah, like older mother woman, like this 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 small little mother was the one committing all of these like really elaborate and gruesome murders is a twist, and the reason it's able to be a twist and not immediately obvious the moment that this woman that we've never met the entire movie suddenly appears on screen is because it's a a defiance of expected gender roles. Yes. 
So like like there's all like these thematically these things have always been there in the subtext whether the people making these movies always meant for it to be there or not. Some I would argue like with Halloween or A Nightmare on Elm Street I would argue that the the filmmakers very much intended to have that sort of subtext. With Friday the Thirteenth I would argue not, but like <laughs> it's there, right? So. I say, I, I, the, my initial quote tweet for this man is literally just, oh no, how dare my, my, and also, like, uh, sorry, also real quick, uh, uh, an aside, uh, I, I, we see, we see that the thing you're complaining about is that all of these story and character conflicts center around women's relationships to each other. We see that that's the thing you're annoyed about. I don't know why you just admitted that to the public. <laughs> Right. The fact that he had to talk specifically about female relationships is really interesting. If you're, if you're annoyed that it's about sisters and mothers and daughters, why didn't you just say siblings and paternal relationships? Hmm. It wasn't about the fact that it's sisters and mothers and daughters, but okay, but that's not the point, and I didn't really lean into it a lot. I literally just said, oh no, how dare that like new slashers lean into their pre-existing subtext to make the new entries into their genre more, like, emotionally resonant and interesting. <laughs> right? And this dude responds to me, like, it's not subtext if it's in the text. And I respond with, textualizing the subtext, or te- textualizing the pre-existing subtext is a sign that a genre is evolving and growing. And he never responded, by the way. He never responded, which I don't give a fuck. What, what, yeah. Because he sent in his friends. His little little misogynist buddy, right? Little misogynist buddy. Um, who responded to that tweet that I made where I, I said, textualizing the pre-existing subtext. <laughs> this person, and I want to make it very clear, I did not up until this point Mention my film academia, academia background. Subtext sure was the biggest word I had used in this entire conversation. Like, I wasn't writing an essay. I was just. Um, you were using two big words, too big, too many big words, Lizzie. You have to. <laughs> this person responds all say, claim, claiming to be a film scholar. And I don't tend to accuse people of lying about that because I find it really irritating when people do that to me. But. Claiming to be a, a film scholar. And basically, like, in the long and short is being like, well, I don't understand what you're saying. It's word salad. It doesn't make any sense. And I'm a film scholar. And I was like, the, what I said was pretty straightforward. But And then I explained it <laughs> anyway. Well. And then, for, like, and I, and then I, and what, what was very clear is that this person thought they were going to come in with, I'm a film scholar. I can appeal to my own authority in this conversation and make you feel stupid and was unprepared for the fact that I was also a film academic with form like who works in this field, who has it was getting my was working on my masters on the subject, like I know what I'm talking about. And you do know what you're talking about. I do know what I'm talking about. And this person kept like they, they clearly thought they were going to come in and make me feel stupid, and I kept being like, like, and I and I just wasn't. It just wasn't working. 
And they accused me of try of saying nothing, quote unquote, saying nothing that doesn't make sense, and trying to obfuscate that with quote impenetrable pseudo academic speak. And I was like, <laughs> over the word subtext. That's too. That's too many big words there, Lizzie. You have to. Back. So this part, like, and and the, the, I, I, I could read out all of the tweets, and I'm not yeah, going to no, do. We probably shouldn't do that, but yeah. Waste of our time. But like, the the long and short is that this back and forth kept happening, where this person would tell me I didn't, would basically say, oh, well, what you're saying doesn't make sense, and then they would set up, they'd tell me, well, you're using that term wrong, and I would have to be like, no, I'm not, but okay, if you want to use the terms this way, we can, and then I would respond cohesively to the thing they said and then they would redefine their terms or completely try and like heel turn the subject they couldn't read any of what you or when i came in uh in any of our replies in any way like there was like a predetermined mindset this person had and they couldn't listen They just kept needing to shift it. I would be like, I would explain my position, and then suddenly, first they tell me you're using those words wrong. And I'm like, no, I'm not. But we can use the, the we can use these words you want to use instead. Okay. And then they'll be like, well, that's not how you're supposed to use that use the words my words, even though that's literally how I just defined it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? But then I would respond again. I would be like, okay, even in that context, X, Y, Z, like I'm still not saying, I'm still not saying anything that doesn't make sense. And then they, then there's suddenly their point of contention with me was that, oh, well, you're trying to claim that your perspective is the only right one. And I'm like, where the fuck did I say that? <laughs> I was like, I didn't fucking, I didn't fucking say that. What are you talking about? Um, and like it was just this constant, like them try, like they, what they wanted so badly was to try and embarrass me. And it wasn't working, and they were so angry. And so then when you turned up, Crystal. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was so funny. Chris, I will, I won't, um, again, I'm not, not going to, like, read out all of the tweets, but Crystal literally just turned up and was, like, textualizing, like, her sentence makes perfect sense. Subtext, like, text versus subtext is not, like, like you, you said... The concept of text versus subtext is not like some difficult pseudo academic phrase. <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's like <laughs> basic, basic. Like if you if you've been to a high school literature class, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and it's literally like you you learn what this is in like eighth grade, but. <laughs> and then I don't remember you said you you said something about like. It's not pseudo academic, like like impenetrable pseudo academic speak. Like this is literally it's basic. This is basic media literacy. Um, and you and and that and no no no. You said that the original argument about slasher movies was like like was was. Oh, that I said it was anti anti intellectual. Yeah, that's what you said, which I think is valid. I think another mistake that people who are unfamiliar with academia like. <laughs> Quiet shade. Who are unfamiliar with academia make when they hear the phrase anti-intellectual is they automatically assume you're calling them stupid. I wasn't which, even calling. By the way, which is even funnier how the person reacted. But I wasn't even calling the person talking to me stupid. I was saying 
I was saying that argument that the original person who posted it is anti-intellectual because it's intentionally trying to divorce the uh, the subtext and the meanings from those films. Just like yeah. wants something that's just visual displays of teens being murdered and no nothing else. Like and that is anti-intellectual because it, it does a great disservice to the the genre as a whole. Fundamentally, that is the definition of anti-intellectualism. But again, like people who aren't familiar with that concept mistake that for being called stupid, uh, which I don't, which I understand. I can understand feeling like that's an insulting thing to say to me, to say to, to say to her about someone. But like, again, you're claiming to be a scholar. <laughs> right. You should understand. Um, and then, so you just said like to say that flat, like, like all you said was, it is anti-intellectual to the, the, the original tweet was anti-intellectual. That is what you said. And then this person who has spent this entire conversation accusing me of um, trying to like bang a gavel and end the conversation by using impenetrable pseudo-academic language responds to you <laughs> with the weirdest fucking question about, a, she picks a random Italian, not random, he was a very important Italian director, but she picks a random Italian director from the immediately, like, like immediately after the, the Italian neorealism movement, who is not a giallo filmmaker. I can't stress this enough. This was such a weird question. <laughs> Asked, what does Cicilline, um, what, okay, how do, how do you contend to the argument that, um, the giallo is a manifestation manifestation of Mussolini's subconscious. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? This has nothing to do with the subject. Again, and that's when I knew, like, that was the moment I knew that this person had just been, like, desperately trying to embarrass me the entire conversation. And when they realized they couldn't, they jumped at the chance to try and do it to you. They just wanted to feel like they were the smartest person in the room, and they were really mad about the fact that they weren't. I, I, yeah, I was, I was just looking at the, uh, the, the screenshots I have. Uh, yeah, and um, the only reason I responded was because they said they said this person said that you were smacking a gavel down to like shut off. Like sort of to to be like you are the ultimate authority, and then I responded saying it's not smacking a gavel down to point out that his point showed a deep lack of understanding of the genre. The quote "Why can't more slasher movies just be about killing teens?" is a bad argument because slasher was never just about that. It's anti-intellectual. That's what I said. That's what you said. Yeah, and then responds um, with a fucking essay thesis statement. This <laughs> is the person goes, "Oh, you want to go deep on this?" Then you know that slasher as a subgenre of horror developed alongside its cousin Giallo in Italy. Why can the development of Giallo be considered a manifestation of Pasolini's Pasolini's sorry subconscious? And I'm like, I didn't take that bait <laughs> because I knew exactly what it was. It was. I know. I I had to laugh because I could I I couldn't comprehend. That a person who has and who's, who's been doing nothing this entire conversation but accusing me of like trying to disguise the fact that I that I have nothing to say with pseudo academic speak 
said that. It's like we both pointed out. It's like when someone, when a woman walks into a into a comic shop and the guy the guy behind the counter goes like, "Oh, you're a comic fan? Well, do you know what happened to Spider Man in issue four twenty seven of XX series? You know, like." Well, Especially when they're, they, they, by their own admission, they said that they uh, posed that question because they wanted to test your knowledge. Well, no, they were, I think they also said that because they said they, they thought that I was was trying to be the de facto, again, kind of like you, was accusing me of trying to say that my way was the only way. And then they, they also thought that I was calling them stupid. Which, bad reading comprehension because I specifically stated that the original post was anti-intellectual. Which is neither calling anybody stupid nor talking about them. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't insult anybody. I just said that the argument was bad. And it was. So there's so so many things about that tweet that just had me so, like my jaw on the floor. I was like, what is this? And... Again, like I said, the weirdest part about it to me is that I've literally never in my life heard anybody, and I haven't seen most of, of Pasolini's films. You know, I've seen I've seen most of Salo, um, a couple other. I can't remember off the top of my head the names of because that's the most famous movie. But like off the top of my head, I can't remember. I've seen a handful of them. I haven't seen most of them, but never, ever, ever in my life have I heard Pasolini referred to as a Jello filmmaker. Ever, which doesn't mean he didn't make films that you could categorize as Jalo, but like never in my life have I heard him like named as a like main like source for the genre or like a, a, the father of it. Like we have those, we have Mario Bava and Ari, Dario Argento. Like we have those people, and I'm sure there's more that who I don't because I I want to know more about Jalos than I do. It's a genre I really really. Um, love but i love it a lot more casual i don't know it with the same intimacy that i know like the american flasher right yeah i'm, I'm kind of in the same boat um but like those those people but like never in my life and any of the reading i've ever done Giles, have i heard have i have i seen Pusilini even like get mentioned which again doesn't mean he didn't make movies you would categorize that way he probably did if you're bringing him up but like what is like he's not <laughs> This is not a filmmaker that made the Jalo. So that's a like this is a, such it's, this is a, this is not a, a question. This is your this is a thesis statement in an essay for this you. This is to not argue. a good faith question. This yeah, is it's a not intentionally bad faith attempt to try and smear people as saying that you don't know what you're actually talking about when they were just embarrassed. They they got their their ass handed to them. Bottom line. Wanted to make their own little thread where they felt super smart, which they did in my mentions. They wrote a mini essay explaining their, like, arguing the thesis statement they gave you. (laughs) And it was perfectly interesting. Like, I buy that this person knows a decent amount about this era of Italian cinema based on the way that they were talking about it. So I'm like, like, okay, that's so, that's, that's neat. That's not a question. It also has nothing to do with the original post. Yeah, and it has nothing to do with the post. Like, it's a trick question that you pose to make yourself to, like, flat, like as a, as a very blatant misogynistic power move. Mm-hmm. And then as me and this person kept going back and forth, I noticed, I noticed 
that even though I was, I the entire time was referring to you as she, her, and you've got your pronouns in your bio, mm-hmm. after several tweets back and forth where I, I noticed that even though I was saying she, her, they kept calling you they, them. Mm-hmm. I just said at the beginning of my of a tweet, I was like, her pronouns are she, her. Which I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I got sick of it after after a bit. Like, I guess it's not a thing that I usually would jump on someone for um, initially because I understand the instincts to default to they them when you don't know and maybe they didn't bother looking at your bio. But I was like, okay, I've set like I'm like this has been made clear enough. I'm gonna paint it for you so that you'll. Um. And then this person responds to me with. I exclusively use they, them pronouns for people who I don't know personally when I argue with them on the Internet. That might not be your policy, but it's mine. And I responded with her pronouns are clearly listed in her bio and I've, ju- I've been using them this entire conversation. And I just told the told you what they were really plainly continuing to use the wrong pronouns after you've been informed. Is ju- is masqueraded transphobia. Yeah, they they them is a is a way of like it's a way of uh again again it's a way of misgendering without like being as blatant about it you know it is like if you know if, when you know when you know somebody doesn't use they them pronouns continuing to do so anyway is misgendering yeah I don't like they them either so. And again, that being, having a default policy of using they, them when you don't know someone's pronouns is fine. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine, but when you've been told, don't get defensive. Adjust accordingly and carry on with the conversation. But when I pointed this out to them, I'm like, if you, like, you need, like, but you know now, so if you don't adjust to it, then that's you being trans, then you're misgendering them, you're misgendering her and you need to stop. Um, And that's when the person blew the fuck up. They got really pissed. They called me a bigot. <laughs> Even though they were blatantly misogynistic. Mm-hmm. They started screaming at that. At least screamed at me. They were like, you... <laughs> it's over t- Something like, you know about, you like, the trauma of calling people, <laughs> like, racist or misogynistic or you something. You never call somebody and any sort of ist or ism when you yeah. do not know them personally. You have triggered a trauma in me and I, for that you are now the first person on this website I have ever blocked, which I don't believe. <laughs> that was a very mask off mo- moment, for sure. It was. It was like This is the highest of insults. How dare you accuse me of this? And it's funny because I actually didn't say you are a misogynist or you are a transphobe. I told them that their actions and behavior were misogynistic and transphobic, which is a different thing. I genuinely don't believe I don't believe in making deterministic statements about somebody's like whole being. Without, like, you know, ample um, exposure and uh, repeated offense, right? So, like, I'll call Steven Crowder a misogynist and a transphobe and a, ra- like, and a racist and a homophobe, etc. Deterministically about his being because that's what he, he declared because, because he repeatedly does it. 
right? Yeah. But I think that there's a difference between that and telling somebody the thing you are doing is transphobic. Right. It's about identifying the actions. Yeah, I try when I think it's like I I try to not um, make declarations about a person's being when the thing when I think that it's really just a matter of uh, needing to correct your behavior or your actions. Um, so the huge defensive swerve was like amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the sign of uh, they lost the point. Oh yeah, so or like sorry to use a, a reverse example. That time, uh, Devin Sawa used the wrong pronouns for his co-star, who play who was playing Glenn and Glenda. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he I think he called them she. Yeah, probably. And people corrected him. That was behave. That was the action was transphobic. But upon being corrected, he apologized. He said that, like, I didn't mean, like, I I didn't mean to do that. I'm very sorry. I appreciate everybody who uh, informed and educated me about it and then carried on. So, like, I would I I would from from that and from his other comments about the queer community, I would determine that Devin Sawa is not a transphobic person. He just did a transphobic thing. Yes. Sorry, like I, I just wanted to explain, like to, that. Those are important distinctions to me, and I think uh, that I think we can all engage in actions that, that could be. I think most people engage in actions that could be considered transphobic or racist or whatever, but that doesn't indicate the entirety of the person. It may just be an accident. It may just be ignorance. It may just be whatever. But as long as you can make up for said actions, like Devon Sawa did, I think it's it's fine. <laughs> like it's about self reflection for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's a, well, it's a matter of like being willing to listen and being willing and like like I'm like. <laughs> so I find I find I find that distinction really important. So the fact that this person came on and and took me saying this thing, this behavior you're doing, is bad in this way. Please change and be a better person. Yeah, like, and and they got super defensive and they got super mad and they took that as me saying that like calling them a transphobe or a misogynist, which is not a thing I ever actually said. Like that that that's yeah. You know, it was know, all tell- just bad faith reading upon bad faith reading upon uh, projection. It was. We spent over twenty minutes talking about this, so we should move on to another subject. But I needed to bitch about I because I'm still shook. I'm shook by the. You're shooketh. The cognitive dissonance of the entire conversation was like, I, I got to points where I couldn't believe this was an actual human I was talking to. Well, the good thing of having a conversation that's long about this is that you understand. We got to have a little bit of an understanding of the idea of subtext versus text and film and reinforce, you know, what makes that genre, like, work. <laughs> so, um, and I guess if we're going to be moving on from this, uh, there was a really popular book series a couple of years ago, and uh, they made a couple of movies um, of varying quality. Uh, <laughs> but there's a new trailer. Would you like to talk about that? Let's see. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. No, the the trailer for um, a Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes came yeah. out this week. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know, 
A Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is a book and now a movie, but it is the prequel to the Hunger Games trilogy. Um, and it tells the story of the 10th Hunger Games. Um, about, uh, Lu- Lucy, Lucy Greyburn, who is, was the only other female victor in the history of District 12. Before, mm-hmm. before Katniss, who is the main character of the, of the primary series. Um, and it is told from the point of view of President Cornelius Snow. The, the dictator from the series proper, um, as a young man before he, before he was, uh, he, his rise to power, um, as, as a young man who is, uh, training to be a game maker and a mentor in the games. And he is Lucy Graybird's mentor, and it is about their relationship, um, at, during this period of his life. Uh, there's many reasons it's significant. The, uh, one of the more interesting details is the fact that the 10th Hunger Games is the first ever Hunger Games that gets televised. And it kind of tells the, it's simultaneously telling the story of how the Hunger Games became the reality TV, um, theatrical, like, entertainment spectacle. That we see in the later. Yeah, that we that we see by the seventy fourth Hunger Games in the in the in the series proper, um, and I understand for people who have not read this book before, perhaps feeling reticent about this premise because it feels like you're being asked to empathize with um, a child murdering dictator, uh, and I cannot stress enough that you are not. <laughs> um. I suppose, like, it could be argued that the book humanizes him. It does not make him sympathetic. Um, it's kind of a harrowing read, honestly, because you have to spend a lot of time in the mind of a very monstrous and terrible person. Do you think and the movie adaptation will keep that, though? Or do you think it's going to kind of... Um, I don't know. That's I the hard do, part, like, when... when I do... <laughs> feel like it's extremely possible that through the nature of being a film and us not existing in Snow's, uh, like not getting Snow's internal monologue, could result in the film ending with a much more sympathetic picture of the character, not necessarily by the fault of the film, but because we as audience members, when we don't have an active internal monologue from a character, have a tendency to project um, empathetic feelings and motivations onto a character that we're that we're like who's when it's our main character. Yeah. So that's possible. I think it just, I think it depends on how the film shakes out. Um, for me, the book is very much like, like the, the point ultimately at the end of the book in regards to snow specifically, the point of the, at the end of the day with the book is that President Snow had Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be a good person. 
he had so he had good people in his life who cared about him and wanted him to be better and he had so many chances to choose to be better and at every single one of those he chooses not to so i to me very much the, in regards to snow the point of the book is uh to reinforce the fact that people do when people do bad like like bad people like him are not that are are that way by choice they are this way because they choose to be this way right and they could choose at any moment they could decide not to be that sounds interesting it is i recommend the book a lot to anybody before the movie comes out the trailer for the movie adaptation came out i think it looks really good I'm very excited about the aesthetic of the the movie because I'm I I the cost this is not a a hot take or anything. The costuming in the original Hunger Games is like really important. Yeah. <laughs> like it's really really thematically intentional, right? The original the Hunger Games series originally like the people of the capital exist in this very future like um, like like idealistically future tech technology mm-hmm. um it's like star trek and hovercrafts and like it's it's clean and it's bright and it's very very like an apple store future with the fashion aesthetics that are very that pull primarily from uh like, like inspired like yes by a general avant-garde fashion but largely uh is inspired by the uh the french aristocracy right before the french revolution Oh, for sure. Um, so, like, the cost, everything about the technology, uh, the aesthetic of the technology is really the thing I'm trying to say. The aesthetic of the future tech and the aesthetic of the costumes and the people in uh, the capital in active contrast to the people of the districts who are extremely poor. Um, and especially District 12, which is clearly generally considered it's supposed to be in Appalachia. Um and so the costumes for the people, the, the wardrobe for the people who live in district, in district 12 is really, really interesting because it's like, like, so much work clearly went into like replicating what coal miner town families in, in, in Appalachia wear and look like. It's so, it's, it's very, it's very, very cool. Like the, the, the costuming for the people in district 12 and generally the districts is clearly based a lot on the Great Depression, like depression era clothing at the, and, and it creates this wonderful contrast. Um, but what's interesting about everything I just said about uh, the capital's aesthetic of the technology and the costuming, right, is it's meant to evoke this period of great um, prosperity and wealth inequity and just, like, overconsumption on the immediate verge of of a war, of a revolution, of great disruption. And what's really fun for me that's something I really actually loved and enjoyed watching in the trailer just from the trailer first ballad of songbirds and snakes which is then set 60 years beforehand it's supposed to be it's 10 is the 10th annual hunger games so it's 10 years after the first rebellion the first civil war in pan am <clears throat> and aesthetically in a ballad of songbirds and snakes the technology and the costumes seem to be pulling simultaneously a lot from the 1920s and the 1950s, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I can see that. And the technology, the aesthetic of the technology seems to be pulling a lot more of a steampunky aesthetic and appearance. And so I find that so interesting that uh, these uh, costumes and these aesthetics now for this period of the of Pan Am's history are inspired by um, periods of post-war reconstruction. Which, Seems like the uh, filmmakers are paying attention to uh, uh, historically relevant and reflective sort of, you know, like costuming and designs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's really cool. I think that's really neat. I got really excited looking at that. I was like, this is so, so interesting. And I thought it was was interesting, but I didn't, (laughs) it's funny, I didn't like overthink about, or think about that. I just went like, oh, Peter Dinklage is in this. Yes. (laughs) Also, Peter Dinklage is in the movie. That was my brain. That and Hunter Schaefer. I'm like, oh, Hunter Schaefer's in this. I'm really excited for Hunter Schaefer to be in, um, I'm I'm excited for Hunter Schaefer to become a movie star. Yes. And this is really good in Euphoria. Mm -hmm. But uh, season two really did not do a justice for her character. I'm going to say that. (laughs) Yes, Hunter Schaefer's also in the movie, and that is very exciting. She's playing Snow's uh, cousin. Okay. Yeah, just I figured you didn't know that, but. (laughs) No, I don't know anything. I just saw. People standing around talking about things and then Hunger Games and then. And, oh, look, Peter Schaefer's here. Yeah. Uh, no, oh, I'm, look, Peter I, Dinklage is saying something ominous. <laughs> Peter Dinklage, Peter Dinklage is playing, um, the architect of the Hunger Games. So. The, the person who came up with and, um, Im- came up with, designed and implemented the plan. Great casting. Great. I'm so that I, I agree with you. Peter Dinklage is definitely the part of the movie I am the most excited for. Everything I've seen him in, he usually steals the scene. So love, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but yes, we love we love Peter Dinklage here at the Gals of Geekdom. We stand. <laughs> we stand. I think I, both because he's a fantastic actor, obviously, like he's just an amazing, amazing actor. I also, I think Peter Dinklage is really, really attractive. I have had a crush on him since I was, uh, when did season five of Game of Thrones come out? Because that's when I started watching. Uh, it ended in 2018, right? I think so. So, and there was six seasons, right? Eight. There's eight seasons? Oh, yeah, that's right. So, like, 2015? I guess, yeah, so, like, since I was, like, 17. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I love, I, I just, I, I, he's so charming. And he's so good. And he can play, like, terrible people, and I'll still just be like, yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, him. But, but he's likable, it's fine. <laughs> He does even make the villains he plays charming, you know? Yeah. What was that movie he did with, uh, where he was kind of like a mob boss? Uh, I Care A Lot. That's what it was. I saw it. Mm-hmm. That was a really interesting movie. 
It was. That's a good. Ed, that that's a really real. If you are ever in the mood for a movie about terrible people. Yeah, uh, that that movie's filled with terrible people. There's not a single good person in that entire movie, and that no. is very much. <laughs> and it also, without spoiling, has a great ending. Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, kind of like Ready or Not. That's another movie where I keep saying that that ending is perfect. I'm going to give me five seconds. Hang on. Count to five slowly. Four. Three. Two. One. Here, what are you doing? <laughs> I was counting. <laughs> Slowly, I can tell. Yeah, I was. You said count, count down from five slowly. So <laughs> I'm good at following but directions. We were also saying that um, one of yeah, one of the things that I think is really great about Peter Dinklage too is that he has. Uh, I think they helped to make like made a lot of progress in the. Uh, uh, development of diversity in Hollywood and roles for uh, dwarfs. I think that's yeah. the right. Little people. For Little sure. people. I think that's the that's the that's the more. I know. But it I, depends. The, the, I, I, the official um, condition is called dwarfism. Yes. And I hear when I listen when I when I listen to people with dwarfism talk about their um, like describe themselves, I frequently hear them describe themselves as dwarfs. But something about it still feels like I'm saying I, I tend to still feel like I'm saying something rude. <laughs> it does feel weird. It, it feels like name calling. It does. Yeah, it's weird. But little people also feel like all of all of them feel like in some way all of it feels like it's it's rude because I feel like um, they are a group of people who have received basically no respect by society ever. So, so it all feels like it's been used in a way to be derogatory in some capacity. Um, but I think I think it's very the point is I think it's very very valuable that Peter Dinklage he had that great bit on a podcast interview where he talks about like how he refused to be a dwarf in the in the Disney Snow White remake. Oh, that's like, right. I remember that. Yeah, I'm not doing this. Shit. Um, and I think he's open. Like, yeah, I think his gen, like, it just you know, stuff like that. His general refusal to um take st- like stereotypical roles. I think that also his the fact that he's so prolific as a dramatic actor mm. and not a comedian is really this the source of like the mo- the most I think that's like the, the the really important step forward because the thing about little he's people respected as an actor. Yeah, the thing about little people in Hollywood is that they've—it's not like there's been no work for them ever. It's that they exist to be a punchline, right? 
they are cast to be a sight gag. Mm-hmm. Like they get cast because there's something it is assumed, it is assumed it is inherently funny to have a little person on your screen. Uh, the yeah. only other major example I can think of that isn't doing that is Willow. Yeah, I was thinking Willow the same thing because even back in the original film, it was pretty. It's pretty rare to have a film that stars you know someone a little person like him and not not be like a punchline. You know, yeah, Willow, Willow takes its main character very seriously and since like it's a very, willow is such a sincere movie which is why it's so nice to watch because so so much about that movie feels like it should be making fun of itself the whole time and it doesn't and yeah, exactly well it does kind of it doesn't take itself seriously it definitely has a sense of humor about it but it's not being mean it's spirited. not itself right and then the new Willow TV show, I would say the version of Willow that we see in that movie is even far less sort of comedic than we got in the original. Like I haven't seen the show yet, which I feel I, bad about that it's been canceled because everybody's been telling me to watch it. I just haven't had the well, time. But Apparently it's not canceled. It's just on the back burner for some reason that means canceled but okay that I I, I I have hope but maybe that's the biggest I did but I do I like Willow is such a such a unique standout in the history of um roles for especially specifically Warwick Davis who is such yeah. a beloved who is who is a super beloved actor but has been like had to play so many of these like 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 how like we people love Warwick Davis. He's been in so many things for like over, over like thirty forty years of acting. But he he like the, the Willow is his only like real leading role. Yeah, really. That's so sad. That's so sad that an actor that talented and beloved. And, and prolific across so many generations and so many great films has only gets has only gotten to have this one um, lead lead part, and so it, I, I I don't know I just say I think uh, Peter Dinklage is helping to make, has 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 very consciously not just like accidentally by existing I, but I think that Peter Dinklage has worked very hard to make a lot of strides in that and I hope that that continues to be seen in the future and I'm super excited to see him in this movie and I still I, <laughs> I still need to to see um what was it called Cyrano Cyrano thank you I always forget I always forget that that's what it's called I still yes. need to, to see his uh his adaptation of Cyrano which also like, like apparently he was in the stage production of it really Aww. Yeah, and then they—they, they, I think this is the same. I think the movie is the same crew who did a stage production first. Then they oh, made the movie adaptation. That's... So oh, that's that that's. Happy. He's very good in it. Uh it's a very, it's a very good role. It's a very good movie. Uh very classic story. Also, we'll tug at your heartstrings. <laughs> 
So, you all, everyone who likes musicals is listening. You should go check out Serena. I think it's free on Apple TV. Hang on. Or, sorry, Amazon. Not Apple. I think Amazon Prime has it. If you have an Amazon Prime account, then I think it's it's streaming. It also, Google is telling me it is also on Paramount Plus. Okay, so that's another good place for that. Yeah. So there you go, you've got options. Yes. I don't know, I'm excited. I I do really, really need to watch that one, specifically because I want to see Peter Dinklage as this, like, charming romantic lead. Yes. (laughs) I really, really do. It's a it's a very uh sweet movie. Um yeah, you should check it out. It's good. Um you know. <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything if you don't know anything about it. But uh just be prepared for a tearjerker. <laughs> okay, do we uh, have anything else? No. I did want to bring up because we were talking about other little people actors who have done well, just very quickly, I want to bring this up. Um, I'm not saying you, you don't ha- you don't have to watch the show because it's not. I mean, it didn't get good reviews. I thought it was fine, but the spinoff of Witcher, the Netflix show, um, the the spinoff that's like four episodes called Blood Origin, Witcher Blood Origin. Um, it's like a little mini series that has Michelle Yeoh in it. Um, I thought they did a really good job with. So the regular Witcher show has little people in it, but they're they're obviously cast as dwarves, uh, like in the fantasy thing, which makes sense. They're given a bit more, um, and the performers are good, um, but you know that's very sort of typical. Um, at least this show, um, in the Blood Origin, one of the main characters they introduced is another dwarf, but um, she is a um a queer badass who is seeking revenge. For people who killed her partner. So, we got some action scenes with her, like murdering people. So, I don't, that's not, that's not the most common, but it's pretty cool. Well, and especially, like, you're, like, it's intersectionality. Being a, a, a an actor who's uh, got any sort of disability, and particularly to the conversation being uh, an actor with dwarfism, makes it really hard. Um, but, you know, we can sit here and name off the top of our heads, like, two or three uh, male dwarf actors. Mm-hmm. Women? Not not very <laughs> many women, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, gets it gets harder and harder. Yeah. Do when I can't when I do think the first thing that comes to mind when I try to think of parts that featured um, dwarf dwarf actors who were women, I think of that episode of House that was nothing but sex jokes about her. Oh, wonderful! It is. It's like it's the kind of thing like you know the the intersection of being a woman with a disability makes you a woman. Uh, makes makes you a person whose only job is to be fetishized constantly, and it's 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 upsetting. Yeah, but at least this this character I brought up gets to be yeah. an yeah. interesting so, badass. 
why that's so why why that's why that's extra exciting. <laughs> I'll have to send you the clip of her introduction. It's kind of awesome. You just see her walk up to this like this building, and it's all like fantasy, like you know, like it's what you expect in a fantasy to look like. This building. She knocks on the door with her hammer in hand. She goes in, and then you just the camera follows through the house, but like you're outside of it, and you're listening to her just like killing people, like and they're screaming, and see someone fly out a window. I thought it was pretty awesome. <laughs> like, the whole scene, you don't see her actually do it. It's more like you're hearing everything. And I was like, that's a cool way to introduce a character. <laughs> so, not that not that the Blood, Blood, Blood Origin show is, is great on the whole. It still has good moments. Plus, it has Michelle Yeoh in it, so, I mean. Did you know that Michelle Yeoh is in the Wicked movie? Yes. I didn't, I learned this, like, this week. Because, uh, the director of that is John M. Chu, who did, um, Crazy Rich Asians. Mmm, I see. I'm, I'm very excited. Um, <laughs> she's, she's playing, um, Water Bucket, their, their, their principal. And, uh, that's fantastic. I love it. The director also did In the Heights. The movie version of that. So I have I have positive vibes going in. Um, I mostly do too. I mostly do too. I am apprehensive because I first of all I don't like that it's cut into two parts. I didn't know that. That's weird. I find that deep I find that deeply unnecessary. Um the state like I and I, what that what I'm worried about from the splitting it into two parts thing is that what they're about to try and do is integrate more stuff from the book, which is a bad idea <laughs> because the book version of I don't know if you've ever read the book Crystal no <laughs> the book version of Wicked and the musical stage version of Wicked have about as much to do with each other. As like, <laughs> so they're very different. I, what you're saying? As, like, I can't even think of as as like Swiss cheese has to do with chocolate. Oh, you kind of kind of like how the how the movie version of World War Z has nothing to do with the book version. Yeah, like it's not like you've put like. <laughs> Like I guess where it's the same, like it, it, the the impetus of the of both things is that um, it is telling the life story of the Wicked Witch of the West. It is striving to um, ask you to like empathize with this uh, character who's been cartoon, who's like you know as this cartoonish villain. Um, she develops a somewhat cordial and, and positive, like, like she has a friendship with Glinda in the book, um, but it's not like in the book. They are roommates in college. They are. Oh, never, oh like, they were roommates. Yeah, they were, that's the other thing. It's like if you're gonna change shit, at least make it gay. Um, <laughs> but um, no, in the book, like, the, like that's not the book is not about. Glinda and Alphaba being besties. That's not what the book is about. The book is a very dry, um, dense read. It gets into a lot of political intrigue. It has like four different POVs. Um, and the the book is in in the book also like explicitly in the book 
Elphaba is a eco-terrorist. Oh, interesting. Like, she kind of goes, and she goes a little bit insane. Like, her, her actual mental stability cracks, and she does, like, hurt and kill a lot of people. Like, she... <laughs> and none of that shit happened. Like, it's, and, and then the, the stage musical is about how Alphabet and Glinda were best friends when they were roommates at school. Um, and uh, Alphabet just really wanted to save the animals, guys. <laughs> like they're not they're not the same thing so trying to like and like, like trying to implement more things from the book into an adaptation of the stage show is a bad idea like it, it's a recipe for making it an extremely tonally dissonant film that is trying too hard to be serious well i guess i just have to wait and see how, how it shakes out <laughs> yes that stresses. I'm sorry, I got super negative there, and I didn't mean to. No, no, that you're good. That that element concerns me, but I'm I'm mostly very up on the casting. I've really liked the costumes and the sets that we've seen so far. I don't love how dark the set pictures we've gotten so far are, but I, it's not too late to fix that. <laughs> I mean, th- those are also like what two or three shots. Yeah. Like, um, like, like, there could be other parts. I like the casting. I, I choose to have faith. I have, there's something in my gut telling me that Ariana Grande is a bad actress, even though I know for a fact that isn't true. So I choose to believe that she's gonna be great. I know that she's gonna nail the singing. So. Yep. That's important. <laughs> So I, I I I am I am I lean towards optimism, but I am very skeptical of the entire enterprise. <laughs> That's fair. And I think with that point and our yeah. hope that that movie turns out to be good, I think I think they've reached a really good conclusion part. Um, would you like to plug where people can find you, Lizzie? You can find me at Lizzie Lemon Drop on Twitter. Or the final horror on TikTok. You go to my Twitter, you can probably still see all of those uh, insane tweet exchanges. Sounds wonderful. People should do that. <laughs> and get, get a big thing of popcorn while they're at it. <laughs> um, uh, Crystal Williams, my pronoun. Oh, sorry, I don't need to say my pronouns again. <laughs> I, it's been a long week. Uh, you can follow me at Crystal W Rocks, or you can read my articles on Medium. Um, and I have other things. And if you want to donate to me, you can. That's always appreciated. Um, but yeah, that's it for us. Um, thank you for listening to another episode of the Gaussic Geekdom podcast. We love you all very much, and we will see you all on the next one. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.